November, and they do that every couple months. And then on Friday and Saturday, parents, there's youth ice skating, middle schoolers on Friday night, and that's from 7 to 9, I believe. And um, yes, and then on Saturday night, 7 to 9, is the high schoolers. The cost for skating is $7. It's a Greeley Ice House down on 8th Avenue. And then on Saturday, Young Timothy Discipleship class at 9 o'clock here at the church. It's going to be the first class that I'm going to have for young men. Uh, maybe you're young chronologically or just young in the Lord. And uh, to be able to just go through some uh, discipleship. And we're going to see where the Lord takes it. Uh, one of the things that I really want to do is not only encourage young guys to grow in the Lord. And, and um, there's so many lessons that uh, we're going to go over um, as we meet uh, over the next several months. And uh, we'll make sure that everybody knows next time we meet. We don't have any set Saturdays. It may be the first Saturday. It may be a couple Saturdays in a month. Uh, just whenever it works out. But we'll make sure that we pass that along. But my whole idea is to be able to encourage young men uh, to really grow in the Lord. And the first lesson that we're going to have is, as Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, you know what manner of, of life, of doctrine, of faith uh, that I was about. And to go through all that and to, to really encourage them uh, to be ones that are growing in the Lord, the Word of God, having uh, those godly uh, characteristics that even that we're going to talk about tonight uh, in the Word of God as we go through Psalm 15. And, uh, and to really encourage them uh, to um, be men of godly character and godly integrity. And also to encourage them in serving the Lord. So I'd like to develop it. And, um, you know, just kind of as they uh, see how they're wired and, and how they're gifted. And to be able to encourage them in, in um, different areas. Some uh, guys may be more hands-on. Uh, the gift of service and and just helping it out in practical things to, to, you know, set that up to where they can come in and, and do things like that. Some guys are more technical, um, you know, and, and um, one of the things that I'm thinking about is uh, with the Calvary Live that I'm doing on Tuesdays, that's very technical. As I did it by myself for the first time on Tuesday, it was like thrown into the water and start swimming, literally. It was like that, and if it wasn't for Travis... Um, it would have been really bad news because he went with me. And, you know, it's coming in through Skype. It's coming in through Gmail. It's on a screen on my computer. And you got a lot of things that are going on at once. So, you know, these young guys that are kind of, um, you know, into that, to have somebody as we set it up here, we will literally do it from here to have a couple screens to where they got to, you know, be on top of it. And, and they've got to be, you know, looking at that screen and, and the calls coming in and being able to look up references. There are some guys that are going to be wired in doing that and just learning different things. I want them to know that this is a great place to be and to hang out, and it really is. It's a fun place. I'm a fun guy to be around, you know. <laughs> My daughter said, all you're going to do is walk around with a cup of coffee, bossing everybody around. But that, that's okay, you know. We have a good time here. You know, it's a good place to be. And I hope you enjoy being here when we gather. It is. And um, to get them excited about ministry. And um, here's the thing to remember, as I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, that I think a lot of Christians are just bored. 
and um, want to be entertained. And um, that's my opinion. Maybe you don't agree with that, but in 23 years of ministry, I've seen that trend. And I hope and pray that we're beginning to understand as we go through God's word that um, it's an exciting life to live for the Lord. If you want to live an exciting life, experience that abundant life, have real purpose in life, then serve the Lord and, and live for him and grow in the scriptures, especially in the day in which we're living in, because there's so many things to do for the Lord, and it's not always easy. That's going to be part of what these guys are going to learn. But as we're committed to doing that, and as we, you know, it's like being thrown in the water sometimes and you start swimming. Other times the Lord's going to take his time in developing and working and being patient. But every day, moment by moment, as you're just staying close to the Lord, it's quite an adventure. And I want them to be excited about the things of the Lord. You know, people um, ask me a lot, why do these doors open up for you? And I try not to talk about me here at the, you know, at, and when I'm teaching, I want to talk about Jesus. But people ask me, how is it that you were able to be a chaplain for the sheriff's office and the doors open up? I don't know. The doors just opened up, and the Lord gave me that opportunity and going on 13 years now to be able to do that. Maybe some guys that are interested in, in maybe going into law enforcement and ministry kind of thing can hang out with me down at the sheriff's office. And see what it's like. And, and to do that. And I'm sure that they would enjoy that as well. Um, how is it that you're able to, you know, have the, your uh, Calvary life? I don't know. The Lord just opened the door. And he will do, listen, as Paul would pray in Ephesians, exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. As you just trust in him and just flow in the ministry that he has for you. And you don't have to, to, you know, strive. You don't have to strain. Just day by day, as I said, moment by moment. Lord, what do you have for me today? Doing simple things. Doing very practical things. Growing in the Lord. Being sensitive to the lead in the Lord. And, and that is going to lead to a life of drawing close to the Lord and desiring to know him more. That's a real key. That is such a key in growing in scriptures. And that's why I come in, you guys, coming on on Wednesday nights. You know, the place is full and a lot of young people. I'm so excited for these guys up here that just went up there. And, um, and what the future holds for them. And I hear a lot about we have a lost generation. Um, and it is disconcerting as we look at the stats on how many leave the church when they graduate from high school. Matter of fact, the latest statistics that I have read is like 80% of kids coming in out of high school that belong to the church, that went to youth groups, stop going to church. Up to 80%. That's alarming. And that's why you're hearing things like, you know, a lost generation, that, um, you know, there's uh, concern for the future of the church. I want to be excited for the church. Because God has his remnant of people, and we also get concerned about, you know, the condition of our country. And, and I was thinking about this uh, the other day, and I believe that God's hand could be very heavy on our nation. But I also believe this, that he wants to save our nation. And he wants to save Greeley, and he loves Greeley, and he loves the state, and he wants to work. So he is looking for laborers to go out into the harvest 
For the harvest is plentiful, right? But the laborers are few. And that's not just for the young people, but for you as well. And there's so much to do in the body of Christ and so much to be excited about. So, anyway, that's my announcement for young Timothy's class. I told you it wasn't going to be long, but I guess it was. So, anyway, um, you know, encourage. And parents, the older high school kids, if, if they're 16 or older, and uh, you feel like that it may be a benefit to them, um, we're going to see how it kind of works out and who's there and uh, work with them and, and uh, be sensitive to that and talk to me if you got any questions and I'll be happy to answer any questions. Vacation Bible School, Flyer, we're planning for that. A park outreach, we're going to do something a little different this year. We want to reach out to the community, so we're going to be doing that. A meeting coming up a week from this Sunday after the third service. And then, guys, the men's one-day conference, sign up for that. Take a look at that. Uh, got plenty of time. It's going to be a great conference. A lot of guys are going to come. Some of the Calvaries are going to be a part of that from up in northern Colorado, and we're looking forward to that. So other things in your bulletin, Koinia Fellowship. Don't forget that on Saturday night as well. And other things that are there in your bulletin, take a look at it. But, Father, we are excited to be here to grow in your word. And I pray that you just bless this time as we continue through these songs. Uh, Lord, songs of praise. Uh, Lord, as we um, apply them to our lives, and I pray for great encouragement and, and edification and instruction as well. So, Lord, we give you this time in the study of your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Psalm 15, the title is the Psalm of David, and it is believed that perhaps this psalm was written after the Ark of the Covenant was brought uh, from Kerjef Jerim to the city of David. Now, when you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 4. It's the end of the days of the judges. Samuel's the last of the judges. That period of the judges lasted about 400 years. When you go through the book of Judges, you see that it was a vicious cycle of them rebelling against the Lord, and, and then they would find themselves in bondage to the enemy, and they would cry out to the Lord, and, and the Lord would raise up a judge to deliver them. So you have the book of Judges uh, that... Um, that time period would go for about 400 years. And we see at 1 Samuel, when it began, Samuel, the prophet, was also the last of the judges. The children of Israel are warning against the Philistines. And they take the Ark of the Covenant, and they go to battle, and the Ark of the Covenant is captured. The Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant, and they go and uh, back to put the Ark of the Covenant in their temple that was a pagan temple dedicated to Dagon, the fish god. And God began to strike the Philistines. And the Ark of the Covenant was moving around from city to city. And wherever it went, judgment was brought upon the Philistines. So they said, this Ark of the Covenant's got to go. So they put it on a cart. They hitched it up to two milk cows and sent it off to Israel. So it would go off to Israel and uh, it would be there at Kerjef Jerim eventually. And at Kerjef Jerim, about 30 miles from the city of David, uh, we know a couple of things happened during the reign of Saul. Saul, in 1 Samuel, as you know, pursued David. David was anointed the king of Israel in chapter 16, and, and um, you know, of 1 Samuel. In chapter 17, he slews Goliath. But we know that David uh, was chased by Saul. Saul hated David. A couple things happened to the nation. One thing is that the nation suffered spiritually because Saul was one 
who wasn't interested in spiritual things. He had rebelled against the Lord. But secondly, it suffered militarily, uh, you know, nationally as well. Because Saul, instead of, you know, defeating the enemy around them and doing battles with the enemy, he was so focused on pursuing David and, and trying to kill David that the Philistines got stronger and stronger and stronger until they went to battle against uh, the men of Israel, defeated them soundly, and it was uh, Saul and his sons killed at Mount Gilboa, which was deep, deep in Israel's territory. So David, when he becomes king, he begins to defeat his enemies. He defeated those who had uh, that area over Mount Moriah, and so he builds the city of David. And he begins to think about, I want to establish a central place of worship. And so what he wants to do is finally go to the Ark of the Covenant. Saul didn't care about the Ark of the Covenant. He didn't care where it was. He didn't care that it would, was to be brought back to the tabernacle and put back into the Holy of Holies. He didn't care about those things, but David did. And David wanted to establish a central place of worship. So he's going to bring it back to the city of David, which eventually would expand and become Jerusalem, and where the temple would be built, where the Ark of the Covenant would be put in Solomon's temple. But we know that as uh, David was bringing the Ark back from Kerjath Jerim to the city of David, there was a great celebration. And what happened was David had good intentions. It was exciting. He was worshiping the Lord. But he did it the Philistine way. He did it the world's way. He put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, hitched it up to an oxen. They're heading back to the city of David. There's dancing. There's celebrating. There's music. Uh, there's sacrifice that is given. And all of a sudden, the oxen stumble. The Ark begins to tilt. And Uzzah puts his hand up on the Ark, and God strikes him dead. Many of you know the story. And it just, everything stopped at that time. So David was wondering, what happened, Lord? And David, he didn't do it the way that God had prescribed in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers is a book of order. This is how you are to do things. This is your responsibility, Levites. The family of the Kohathites, what you're to do is carry the furnishings. And the Levites were to carry the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. And if anybody touched the Ark of the Covenant that wasn't supposed to, then they would be put to death. They would be judged by God. So David knew the consequences of it. As of putting his hand on it, putting it on a cart, you see, even though he had good intentions, he did it the world's way. And I think there's an important lesson in that, and that is we can have a desire and good intentions uh, of doing something for the Lord, but we need to make sure that we do it the Lord's way, not the world's way, not the Philistine's way. So David realizes we need to put the ark on the shoulders of the Levites, and then they would proceed and bring it to the city of David, where for a while, until the first temple was built, there was the tabernacle there in the city of David, and then the actual tabernacle where they did the sacrifices at Gibeah that was about 12 miles away from the city of David. But in chapter 15, that's the background to this psalm. And he writes, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, and who may dwell in your holy hill? So as we look at this, sometimes I, I've heard this psalm kind of being taught like, you know, here are the works that you're to do. This is how you can become righteous before God. But here, notice that um, it, they aren't the works. How are you to come before God? But it says, who is the one? Who may abide in your tabernacle? 
Who may dwell in your holy hill? And it's you and me, the tabernacle, of course, speaking of the presence of God. The tabernacle is there in the wilderness in the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, where the tangible presence of God was that the, the high priest would go in once a year and, and sprinkle the blood of, of the sacrifice on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the nation. You and I, who is it that us, we can come into the presence of the Lord? Those of us who have come to Jesus in faith, knowing that he's done the work that he paid the price for our sins. You know, isn't it interesting that there are Christians that, uh, you know, will get, you know, so focused on what I have to do, and we need to realize, first of all, that it's been done. There are other people that are religious people that, um, you know, they'll go through all kinds of expenses to try, you know, to touch God, all kinds of excursions or, you know, um, adventures, you know, I'll climb this mountain, you know, and meditate and see this holy person, or I'll go to this village, you know, uh, deep in, you know, Europe somewhere, and, you know, somebody thought they saw a vision, and we'll stand there and see a vision. People go through all kinds of stuff like that. You and I as Christians, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of the work that he did, that we can now, Hebrews chapter 10 says, come into the presence of the Lord. The holy of holies is what the writer of Hebrews says, having confidence that we can do that because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Not in our own confidence. And I hope and pray that all of us realize just the glorious and wonderful opportunity that we have. We don't have to spend thousands of dollars and expend a bunch of energy to try to touch God by going up on a mountain or, you know, going deep in a village somewhere in, in the Far East and finding a holy man or, or all these other things that people will do right where you're sitting, right where you're at. As you, a believer, the Holy Spirit of God is inside of you, can come into the presence, the Holy of Holies, into the throne room of grace anytime you want to do it. And you can do it and stay as long as you want in the, his presence. That we would never take that for granted. Do you realize if Aaron the high priest were here, or the other high priests of the Old Testament, and they would read what the writer of Hebrews wrote, they would say, wow, that is absolutely incredible what you are privileged to have and be able to do. And that's what the whole writer of Hebrews is emphasizing in his book, that, hey, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament times, the tabernacle, the, the Old Testament temple, you know, there was a weakness in that, and that was it didn't bring you into the presence of the Lord. Only the high priest could go in for a short time on one day a year. But now you have the opportunity to do it any time that you want. So here is David as he's celebrating, bringing the, the Ark of the Covenant. Who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And now verses 2 through 5, what we see here is he begins to give 10 things. You can write it down in your notes. I think these are 10 characteristics that we should have as a Christian. These should be 10 things that should be being worked out in our lives because we have come to Jesus Christ. Because we have the Holy Spirit of God that is in our hearts and working through us. So in verse 2, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. Who's, in whose eyes a vile person is to despise, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, and he who does not put on 
uh, his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. So these characteristics, if, you, if you're taking notes, number one, in, in verse three, you can write that walks uprightly. Then what does that mean? It's somebody who is blameless, somebody who is walking in godly integrity. We talked quite a bit about that in uh, the book of Job that we just finished a few weeks ago. In the description that God gives of Job is that Job was a man that was, you know, uh, blameless. He was one that had godly integrity. He, he was upright. In other words, he wasn't perfect. When we see that word blameless, you know, walks uprightly because no one is perfect. I look at the character or uh, the qualifications of an elder there in 1 Timothy 3 uh, as an overseer, as a shepherd, and it says they're to be blameless. And I read that and I think, well, I can sit down, uh, you know, because I'm not blameless all the time, but here's the thought on it. And here's the thing that's very important it's not talking about perfection, but I don't want anybody to look at my life and be able to say, you know what, you're. Christian you're a Christian I wouldn't have known that by the way that you talk or the activities that you're involved in or by your actions or by your behavior by your speech there doesn't seem to be very much purity in your life you know what I mean you don't want anybody to look at your life and say you're not a man you're not a woman that walks uprightly that there is blame there. And again, we have our weaknesses. We have our shortcomings. The Lord is still working. But we pray, Lord, help me to be that witness to somebody else. I want to be a man. I want to be a woman of honesty, of godly integrity, to be blameless before others. I don't want people to just easily see that there's fault in me and shortcomings and worldliness in my life. So first of all, walking uprightly. Secondly, you can write works righteousness. That is righteous acts. Now, none of us are righteous in and of ourselves. We are righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. And we as believers, righteousness is imputed unto us. Positionally, we are righteous before God. But being believers now, being born again by the Spirit of God, as we have, you know, all things become new. We're a new creation in Christ, aren't we? That we no longer walk in a former lust, but we put on the new man, the new woman, as we are told. It literally means put on a new set of clothes. And we're walking after the Lord. We get to do righteous acts. So that's what it means in working righteousness. Thirdly, speaks truth in their heart. The word of God being in our hearts, because the word of God is true, isn't it? And we want the truth that is in our hearts. We don't want deception, corruption. You know, we don't want worldliness that's in our hearts. But it's a heart issue. We want to speak truth to others. We want to speak truth to those who are linked to us in our lives. And then fourthly, they don't backbite. In other words, the characteristic that you and I should have is we're not backbiting. We're not putting people down, we're not gossiping, we're not slandering, we're not, you know, just being negative towards people all the time. One of the things that we read in Ephesians chapter 5 is that Paul writes, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. 
Let no corrupt words proceed out of your mouth. We don't want to backbite. You know, we're the body of Christ. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're a family. And so we're here to encourage and lift each other up and, and to, to pray for each other. A place where we know that people are going to be honest with us. Even when we bring correction, we do it in an attitude and in a response of, I want you to do well in the things of God, brother, sister. I, I want you to, to know that this is what God's word says. But we don't backbite. Fifthly, we see, don't do evil to a neighbor. It talks about how you treat others. Of course, it is the two great laws as the law of God is summed up in loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. So that's what we see here as, you know, the characteristics that um, are to take up. And in verse 3, we can put number 6, doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. In other words, you're not putting them down. You're not being negative critical of brothers and sisters all the time. You know, I'll, I'll like you if you meet my expectations. If you, you know, benefit me in some way. You don't want to take up a reproach against, you know, his friend. And then as you go to verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. We talked a little bit about that a couple weeks ago. Remember in Psalm 12 that uh, David, when he was talking about the ungodly, he's talking about how when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. In other words, there you know, are those in our society that may have fame and fortune and seem cool, but they're very vile, and unfortunately, they're exalted in our society. They don't care about God. They mock God, perhaps, but we have so many young people that look up to them. And you and I as Christians, you know, we don't want to, to, to do that. We don't want to, you know, whose eyes a vile person is despised. In other words, we're not exalting them, as David would write about, but they honor those who fear the Lord. So we honor those, as we go to number eight, who fear the Lord. In other words, honor your brothers and sisters. Honor those. Look to those who are godly. Godly examples. That's my desire is I want to be a godly example to you and to your children. I want to be the same man out of the pulpit as I am behind the pulpit. I don't want to be a fake. I don't want to be deceptive. I want to be a godly example to those who can look at me and say, there is someone who loves the Lord. Again, not perfection. Here's the thing. I don't think anybody expects perfection out of anybody. But more than anything, is that your pastor that you can say is a man that loves God and he fears God. And for you to be that godly example. And that leads us to, to number nine. You can write down as we read here that does not change. As he says that, that he who swears to his own hurt and does not change in verse 4. In other words, you have consistency that is in your life. And I think one of the greatest witness that you and I have to others is have consistency, that we have discipline in our life. And yes, there are times and seasons that we go through that we can struggle or we falter or you know we're going through difficulties, but there's consistency in our life of looking to the Lord consistency 
in our lives and how we conduct ourselves, our behavior, our speech. That is such a great witness, but not on this roller coaster. When one week, you know, oh, I, I've done pretty well around the guys at work. I didn't join in with the dirty jokes. I wasn't cursing. You know, I wasn't hanging out with them at the bars after work, whatever it might be. But then the next week, oh, I slipped up. I started telling some jokes. My language was terrible. I regretted going to that place after work because I did some things and said some things that I shouldn't have. But to have consistency where people can say, you know what, there's a consistent walk. You know, part of being a disciple comes from the word discipline, being disciplined in our lives, where there's consistency is a great witness. I think it's a huge witness that people need to see in our lives. And then we see, in, in, um, as we continue on here, is that we don't rip people off as we go to verse 5. And he does not put on his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. In other words, you don't rip people off. And David is saying these are the characteristics that we should have. And then number 10, there is a blessing in living this way. He says that he who does these things shall never be moved. Does it remind you of something that we've already looked at in, in Psalm chapter 1? Remember Psalm 1, that it was the writer of Psalm 1. If it was David, we don't know for sure, but it could have been. That it says that the one who delights in the law of the Lord and in his law, he meditates day and night, you know, that shall prosper in whatever he does. She'll be like a tree that's planted by the river of water that brings forth this fruit in a season. That is their stability that is there. Their strength that is there. So these are the characteristics that should be a part of our lives that David is writing here, that we can learn so much. We can spend more time talking about these things. But now as we go into Psalm 16, we read in the title, A Mitchum of David. Now, a Mitchum, that's the first time that we see this used, this word, and we don't know exactly what it means. It, it has the meaning of perhaps a secret psalm or more like a silent psalm. And this psalm is interesting because it's a messianic psalm, as we're going to see. Peter refers to Psalm chapter 16 in Acts chapter 2. He said that it refers to Jesus. So did Paul in chapter 13, and we're going to see that it does. So this is a psalm of joy as David focuses on the grace and the goodness of the Lord. David here will give three descriptions of the Lord that applies to Jesus Christ. So in Psalm 16, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. For as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So David's prayer is preserve me, which means keep me safe. He's expressing his confidence in the Lord. And we can praise the Lord knowing that our confidence is in him. Not in ourselves. Our confidence is not in the world. It is in the Lord. And he goes on and says, my goodness is nothing apart from you. And that is true. Do you realize apart from him, there is no goodness in us? Remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, hey, good master. And Jesus stopped and said, 
you know that there's no one good but God. And in that, he was trying to draw out the rich young ruler saying, you recognize that I'm good, do you recognize that I'm God? And so there is none that does good. There's no goodness in it. Paul went on to say, you recall, that he would write in Romans chapter 7 that in our flesh there is no good thing. There's nothing good in our flesh. And I remember when I first read that, I thought, really? Isn't there something? My good looks? Something? <laughs> nope. I was only kidding. Looks, togetherness, strength. In our flesh is no good thing. And then later on, when he wrote in the prison epistles to the Philippian believers, he says, have no confidence in the flesh. If anybody should have confidence in the flesh, it was me. Because I was a Pharisee of Pharisee. I was from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. Man, I was a religious zealot. But he says, I gave that all up for the knowledge of the excellence of Jesus Christ, to have a relationship with him, to follow after him. My faith is in him. So have no confidence in the flesh. And here David, he knew that. He says, my goodness is nothing apart from you. And then he goes on and he speaks about the saints. And that's kind of a familiar theme that for, you know, I've read the Psalms over and over and over again, but the privilege to be able to kind of dig into it a little bit deeper uh, going through it, I've noticed even in these first 16 Psalms that David really elevated and had a high value and, and looking to and what was important to him was the family of God. He expresses delight in the people of God. Do we delight the people of God? Do we delight in our brothers and sisters despite all our failures, despite all our faults, to really realize what a tremendous privilege and blessing it is to be a part of the body of Christ, to be a part of, of a church you know, that where people love each other and you can grow together and be blessed, to be encouraged. I pray that this is the place, Calvary Chapel, for you, that this is family. And some of you, this family here, you're closer to than your blood family because perhaps you're the only Christian in your blood family. Or maybe because of just trouble or difficulties, there's separation and there's turmoil and how we need each other and may we delight in each other and realize what a privilege it is to belong to the body of Christ, to belong to a body of believers. And David, he valued that. Oh, he goes on. The saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And then he goes on in verse 4, their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. You know, David was a sinner, wasn't he? You remember when you go into, you know, First and Second Kings, and when you go into Second Chronicles, when the kings of Judah are mentioned, they're compared to David. David, you know, was the standard. And you think about that, well, David committed adultery, David committed murder, David was forgiven, 
Why was David elevated to that? Because here's one thing that David never did. He never bowed the knee to an idol. Solomon did. Solomon burned incense to idols. He built temples to idols because of all the wives that he had from foreign countries. But David never did that. And he expresses that here. I, I won't do that. He says, I won't take up their drink offerings, uh, nor take up their names on my lips. He was a worshiper of the Lord. That's why he was called a man after God's own heart. And in verse 4, their sorrows are going to be multiplied who turn to other gods. Now in the Old Testament, when the Lord was calling his people back from rebellion and idol worship, he would say that those gods that you're worshiping cannot help you. They will not benefit you. They will not bless you. They can't, you know, deliver you in time of trouble. How can you put your trust or confidence in something that David hears is, says will only multiply sorrow, and it's true. Because of their idol worship, that their sorrow was multiplied. Now, here's the ironic thing. That you recall that in the upper room discourse that Jesus told the disciples there on that night that he was betrayed, they were full of sorrow and trouble. And he says, your sorrow is going to be turned into joy. The world, there may be pleasure for a short season in sin and rebellion, but it's going to be turned into sorrow. Our sorrow is going to be turned into joy. And their sorrow is going to be multiplied, and it does happen in life. Because to turn to anything other than Jesus, to put your confidence in other gods or in the world is going to lead to more sorrow and more disappointment and more defeat. How can we put our trust in that? God's word says don't. Our trust is in him alone. We know that it can be hard to be a Christian because the world hates us and people may come down on us. But I firmly believe that it's a lot harder not being a Christian. Remember that. I think it's a lot harder not being a Christian. I can't think what it would be like life for me if I wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ. How cruddy life would be. I'd probably be so depressed, so discouraged, have such a negative attitude. I just know that would be, at my age, at the years that I'm at, yeah, there may be some, I don't know, but I just can't imagine not having my confidence in the Lord and not having the Lord in my life. It would be so much harder not having the wisdom and, and the, the you know, direction of the Lord, the strength of the Lord in my life, having to rely on the world's hope and the world's philosophy. It's a scary thought, isn't it? So David is speaking about those things in Psalm 16. And then in verse 5, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. And so the Levites, you recall that when they came into the promised land from the wilderness, that the Lord said to the Levites, hey, you're not going to get a portion of land. Um, you're going to be the priestly family, and I will be your inheritance. And David understood something that all those who knew the Lord, who belonged to the Lord, that, that the Lord was their inheritance. We talked about in Peter chapter 1 as we opened up that epistle on Sunday 
that we have this inheritance from God, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ for inheritance incorruptible that he has kept for us in heaven, waiting for us. We have an eternal inheritance. It's going to be so glorious and so wonderful that we cannot even come close to comprehending it. We have all the riches in Christ that belong to us. Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul takes us to the heavenlies in that book, he says that we have an inheritance. And listen, nothing in this world, no fame, no fortune, no prosperity, no prestige, can compare to the riches and inheritance that we have in Christ. And you may be here tonight and you don't have two dimes to rub together. But I got good news for you. You have the inheritance of Christ that is so glorious that will last forever. And it is going to be so glorious that we need to make it a priority in our lives to store up our treasures in heaven, as Jesus said. And as I mentioned to you earlier, and I won't get, you know, on it, but again, where you live in a society, and even in the Christian church more and more, where more Christians are discontent and restless and not satisfied, looking for what can I get to make me happy. And so many messages in Christianity is, this is how you benefit now temporarily from Christianity, you know, in the prosperity movement and uh, name it and claim it and all of that. And so many Christians, it sounds so good to the flesh. And I'm not saying that God can't bless you. Every good gift comes from above, doesn't it? And if he blesses you, be a good steward of what God has given to you. And if you have little, be a good steward of what God has given to you. And be thankful. But know this, that you have a godly inheritance and the priority is in the eternal, not the temporary. And the priority is to give praise to the giver, not to focus on the gift. The gift is a blessing. I'm not saying that it's not. But the giver, to know him and to serve him and to walk with him. And David knew that as he wrote this psalm, inspired by the Spirit of God. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. The Lord is our wonderful counselor, and he will be our strength, and he will give us direction and comfort and truth in what he tells us to do in his counsel. And I've made reference to many of you that have come to me and you have talked to me about something that you need to pray about. Hey, you know, wh where do I go from here? And, and I need prayer for this. And oftentimes I will quote from Isaiah chapter 30 that the Lord was telling the people of Israel to come to me. Don't go to Egypt for counsel because it's all going to be in vain. But he says, in returning and rest, you shall be saved when you come to me. And, and quietness and confidence shall be your strength. And blessed are those who wait for him. And I will be a voice behind you saying, this is the way walk in it. He's the wonderful counselor for every single area of our lives. The answers are found right here in this book. And in those times when we pray, Lord, do I take this job? Do I buy this house? Do I go and move to this city? What do I do in this case? 
the Lord is there to show you in his word to speak to you and in that still small voice of the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to give you a peace that rules in your heart. Colossians chapter 3. That word rule means a baseball umpire. He's going to give you a peace that rules in your heart. And I'll tell you what, one thing that I've learned. When I'm making a decision, Lord, do I go here? Do we do this? You know, do, do I, uh, I need to take care of that? How is it that I handle that? And as I pray about it and I seek the Lord, that he'll give me a peace. And if I don't have a peace about something, it's like a yellow light that's flashing. Just hold on. I want that peace that rules in my heart. I want the Lord to make the call. And he will do that because he wants to lead you. Do you know that? He wants you to go to him. He promises that he'll be that voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Go to the left. Go to the right. Go in this direction. And it's wonderful. That's what makes being a Christian so wonderful. In the Old Testament, they had the Urim and the Thummim, and they would oftentimes, they didn't know exactly what it was, but they, a simple explanation is the high priest had in his breastplate a couple of stones, and you ask him a question, do we do this? And he'd pull out a stone, yes, or the other stone, no. And wouldn't that be kind of cool if you could come in my office and do I do this, do I take this job? And I pull out a stone and throw it down and say, yes, you should do that. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Convenient, you might think, but we have something better. The still small voice of the Lord. Elijah, get up and eat. The journey is long. He runs down to the mountain of God. As he runs to the mountain of God, he's there in the cave, he's down, he doesn't know what to do, he doesn't know where to go, he's hiding. Elijah, what are you doing in this cave? And all of a sudden, there was an earthquake. The Lord wasn't in the earthquake. There was the wind, a mighty wind. The Lord wasn't in the wind. There was a, a fire. The Lord wasn't in the fire. But he heard the still, small voice of the Lord. Elijah, I got things for you to do. I got something for you to do. What are you doing in this cave? Hiding. And in our journey in life, the Lord wants us. We, we think, Lord, what am I to do? And we, you know, write it in the sky. You know, some big spectacular thing's going to happen, you know, to make it clear. You be still. And we need to learn to hear the still, small voice of the Lord as he guides you. You know why? Because he's got things for you to do. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time in your word. We thank you that for just these few psalms that we went through. And, Lord, as David continues to write, that because we go to you for counsel and strength and our confidence in you, we can have a heart that is glad. And that you are our hope and we can rest in that. And just as this messianic psalm goes on to say, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, but you will, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption, but you will show me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Lord, we know that that was meant for Jesus 
speaking of his resurrection, but we get to live in that resurrected life as we've put our faith and trust in you. And Lord, our pleasure is, our fullness of joy comes from being in your presence. So Lord, we thank you that we did that tonight. You're here with us. And Father, I just want to pray, if there is anyone here tonight, maybe you're listening on live stream, don't turn it off. Because I believe the Lord's still ministering and whoever's listening to this message. I know the coffee shop, there's a lot of people out there, but if anybody's here tonight that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, that he is your righteousness. He is your salvation. That Jesus desires for us to go down the path of righteousness. Not the path of the world. Not the path that you think is good. Because we don't put our confidence in ourselves. And that's why the Bible says that we are to repent and turn to Jesus. Surrender your life to him. He loves you so much. He came to save you, to die for you, for your sins. He took the judgment that you deserve upon himself. He cried out, it is finished from the cross. He completed the work of atonement for dying for you, the propitiation, the satisfaction for sinful humanity. And then he was put into a grave and he rose again after three days. And he's alive, he conquered sin and death. And salvation comes only by faith and trust in Him. As you recognize your need for the Savior of the world, that you're a sinner, that in your flesh is no good thing. Our goodness only comes from the Lord, as David wrote 3,000 years ago. And if you haven't done that, I want to give opportunity. If there's somebody here that you don't know where your standing is with God, get right with God tonight. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Surrender. Quit going in the direction you're going and turn to Him for forgiveness of sin and the hope of heaven. Because as Peter wrote in his epistles, we saw on Sunday, we have a living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus. And you pray right where you are that Jesus, I am a sinner. But I believe you died for my sins and that you're alive. Because I sense your presence in my heart right now. And I open my heart to you and I ask that you would forgive me. And be my personal Lord and Savior. To be the Lord of my life. To sit upon the throne of my heart. And thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. And for saving me. And loving me. Help me to live for you grow in your word to grow in your love in Jesus name and if anybody prayed that prayer tonight when we get done here in just a minute I want you to come up and tell me the decision that you made as service ends and so I can pray with you and encourage you but Father for all of us may our confidence be in you may we just look to you for everything and Lord knowing that the fullness of joy comes by just being in your presence day and night. Guide everyone here. Bless our time, you know, the rest of the week. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for this church family that you've put together. 
May your love grow in us as we just grow in our love for you. So Lord, take everyone home safely. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and God's people said, amen, amen. Would you please stand? Remember all the things God